1: Hello, welcome to New Books Network. My name is Clayton Gerard. My pronouns are he, him. And today I'm here with Dr. E. Cram, author of Violent Inheritance Sexuality, Land, and Energy in Making the North American West. Violent Inheritance deepens the analysis of settler colonialism's endurance in the North American West and how infrastructures that ground sexual modernity are both reproduced and challenged by publics who have inherited them. Cram e. redefines sexual modernity through extractivism, wherein sexuality functions to extract value from life, including land, air, minerals, and bodies. Transfusing queer ecocriticism with archival and ethnographic research, CRAM reconstructs the linkages, landlines as they call them, between infrastructure, violence, sexuality, and energy, and shows how racialized sexual knowledges cultivated settler colonial cultures of both innervation and innervation. Grappling with these landlines, Cram insists helps us interrogate regimes of value and build otherwise unrealized connections between queer studies and the environmental and energy humanities. So thank you so much for being here with me today, Dr. Cram. It's great to see you.
0: Thank you for having
1: me. Yeah, and I wonder if you'd begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. So currently I live in the U.S. in the university town of Iowa City, Iowa, and surprisingly enough, this is also where the University of Iowa is located. There's a local joke that all of our creativity went into the name. Um, And so (laughs) here I'm I'm a faculty member in the departments of communication studies and gender, women's, and sexuality studies. Um, And before arriving in Iowa, I was in a one year teaching position in Northern New York, otherwise known as the North Country near the US Canadian border. Um, And prior to that, I lived in Bloomington, Indiana, which some call the Hoosier Apex, and also home to the Kinsey Institute. Um, And I completed my PhD at Indiana University in the Department of Communication and Culture, which was an interdisciplinary cultural studies program that uh, sadly no longer exists. Um, And so while at Indiana, I had the good fortune of working with a number of faculty in gender and sexuality studies who focused on what some will call rural queer studies, or in in essence, rethinking queer studies from non-metropolitan locations. And so for me, I was bringing to these conversations my own experience coming of age in the Rocky Mountain region, particularly Colorado and Wyoming, um, and a very short experience uh, in Oklahoma. Um, but more broadly, my work, as it's taking shape, especially um, right now, posts the book at this stage, um, I study the cultural politics of the environment through queer, trans, and disability ecologies. Um, and I focus particularly on a nexus of affect, environment, and violence, especially how a focus on sexuality, disability, and race shifts how we might understand energy and ecology, Um, and particularly why those perspectives are so necessary for thinking in and intervening in the moment that we're in.
1: Awesome. Thank you for that introduction. I just want to say that I found this book to be very provocative and interesting and really quite fascinating. You brought together these topics of race and colonialism and sexuality and energy and environment in ways that like I haven't thought of before which was really exciting to be able to read this work and have these new ideas and theories and learn so much so thank you for such a great book I really enjoyed reading it thank um, you. yeah so to start us off can you tell us a little bit about how this book came about for you
0: Sure. So, uh this book has been a journey <laughs> to say the least. So, as I as I mentioned before, it's, you know, rooted in my experience growing up in Wyoming, Colorado, um where I stopped living full-time in around 2006 when I graduated from my undergrad. Um but formally the book started as my dissertation uh in and so while I was at Indiana as I mentioned, there was a handful of gender and sexuality studies faculty um, who organized a conference called Queering the, Co- the Countryside, and that became a book uh, published by NYU Press in 2016. And I uh, was able to workshop a chapter, kind of the, the raw seeds of a lot of the work that I, that I did in the book. Um, and that specific chapter um, was about the visual legacy of Matthew Shepard um, and how his case shaped how national audiences in the 1990s imagined and thought about rural spaces relative to national debates about so-called hate crime legislation. So it really kind of interrogated how, you know, whiteness, rurality and class um, were kind of combing together through right uh, arguments about, you know, safe places to be in in large measure. Um, And so, that conference was really transformative for me because it made me realize the value of my geographic experience to academic training. Um, I think, you know, talking to a lot of people um, who are academics who do queer studies or disability studies, but who come from kind of, uh, you know, non-metro locations, um, we oftentimes feel this pressure to kind of Uh, perform in particular ways within the academy. And so, um, you know, there's also this common narrative amongst this literature about a narrative of escape that, you know, you uh, to truly, you know, embody queerness in in the U.S. in that imagination, you know, one would have to relocate to San Francisco, New York. Of course, this was, you know, I think that things have changed in some way, in part because of just like the cost of living <laughs> in these days, days and age. Yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was really grappling with this sense of, um, you know, of escape in a whole lot of registers. Um, and I, you know, as a teenager, I, you know, don't get me wrong, I deeply wanted to escape from Wyoming. Um, but that was a, that also wasn't the only feeling that I experienced. So um, for me, you know, these landscapes really, evoke a lot of really deep ambivalence. And I use ambivalence because it really, I think, casts a wide array of oftentimes conflicting emotions that we might have about place, especially when we think about, you know, for me, relative to the West, it was thinking about belonging amidst landscapes of violence. Um, Because, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Wyoming, but there is this whole culture of, like performing the, the mythology of the frontier of the wild west. Um, and it is also a deeply militarized landscape, which is something that I don't talk as much about in the book, but so I I was really grappling with like, what does it mean to belong in a place that is so formatively shaped by violence? And I think that you could be anywhere in the United States and ask that question. Um, And so the conference was, uh, you know, really generative in a lot of ways, Um, and it engaged questions and themes of these spaces through settler colonialism and disability and class. And I remember a moment where I realized that I could see this place that raised me, that shaped me in a really powerful way, um, that I could see it differently in a way that really kind of cut across a binary of, you know, either saying... I'm going to celebrate this place or, you know, like fully reject everything about it, because I think that, um, you know, like I'm really indebted to people who have lived and survived and thrived against all odds within this landscape. And, you know, like wanting to make sure that I was attentive to those histories and those stories Um and so the book became a way for me to engage with some of those complexities, um, especially asking, how did we get to a moment where this is, you know, like, this is the way that we associate rural spaces, particularly Wyoming in the West, um, through violence and sexuality. Um, and as I went deeper into this conversation, I started to think about the role that constructs of the environment play, particularly in terms of, you know, associations to rural or non-metropolitan or urban or the city, right? I think that there's, you know, we can talk about those categories demographically, and those are probably the least interesting ways to characterize these spaces. But, um, In environmental studies, and particularly those who are indebted to frameworks of environmental justice, the environment is everywhere, right? It's not out there or contrary to urban life. The environment is literally where we live. And environmental justice teaches us that race and class absolutely shape uh, the conditions of which we live and who flourishes and who doesn't. So ideas about Um, nature are more robust in a lot of the work that exists in queer ecology, which tends to be taken up primarily within uh, the study of literature. Um, But work thus far didn't have a whole lot to say about the interconnections between sexuality and environment in both imagining and engineering those environments. Um, And so by engineering, I'm really thinking about the meso or even macro level of social experience, um, wherein resource mentalities dictate how to engineer a city or a landscape in order to make them productive as an infrastructure for human use or for consumption, and primarily for value within a capitalist regime. Um, So in other words, sometimes the book is about whose worlds compose the ground that locates me in time and space? um, And what does it mean to think about what you inherit when you do so? And for me, because of my experience growing up in the West, and more broadly, because I I work in ecologies of violence, I had to turn to energy, um, which is a term that I can talk more about later.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for going over that. It's always very fascinating to me to be able to hear about how a book comes about for someone. And I'd love to go ahead and just dive right into a lot of the work that you do. Um, First, I think it would be kind of good to start the conversation with some foundational questions that can kind of structure how we're talking about things. One of these is this concept of inheritance I loved the first sentence of your preface which was some inheritances feel like unwelcome debts which is a great opener for the book but also it's just something that I've thought of in the back of my head since you know reading it of just reflecting of you know region how you've talked about that and also ancestry and the inheritances of violence and um, such that I'm sure will continue getting into in this interview, but um, can you introduce us to what you mean by inheritances here and kind of how it frames the ways you're talking about, you know, violence?
0: Yeah. So I, I really like, love this line too, in part because it's one of the few direct lines that exist from the dissertation and that have survived years of, of editing the manuscript. And um, so, the preface is an opportunity to introduce the reader um, as I. Uh, Introduce the reader as I remember it, as it was, as my sense of the region was shaped um, through things like family stories and the feeling of being a kid and then later a teenager and a young adult, thinking about what my place was within the landscape um, and the histories that comprise the region of, as a whole. And so, um, you know, my first entry into thinking through. Um, these kinds of inheritance um, was you know through my own queerness and later trans masculinity and the overall kind of weight of what I would learn about my paternal grandfather who I talk about in uh, in the preface and so my kind of uh, medium for stories about my that grandfather was my own father who was um, an avid history uh, lover and and talked about history Constantly, especially you know, like what he remembered, sort of stories passed on generationally, right? So there's a sense of inheritance as, um, you know, on one hand, the kind of the story, cult- the storytelling culture of the region itself, but more specifically, the, the inheritances in the in the preface set up this kind of intersection between uh, many of the dominant. Uh, kind of terms or relationships that I'm in investigating in the book itself. So first is the weight of white settler masculinity that is deeply characteristic of life in Wyoming and the and the West more broadly. Um, and the other in- intersection of that is the overwhelming presence of the fossil fuel industry. So um, Colorado and Wyoming are some of the top producers uh, within the United States of coal. Uh, uranium and so-called natural gas and um, markers of that infrastructure are literally everywhere. But when you, I found, you know, like when I, when I, when you're living there, it oftentimes just recedes to the background, right? So things like um, fracking tanks, right. Just become part of the landscape itself. But then, you know, when anytime that I would travel, Um, to Cheyenne, which is where my parents live, um, you know, I could like feel the presence of it. And of course, it stuck out to me in this different kind of way. Um, But the extractive relationships that make that industry possible are so deeply connected to violence, both historically, as well as in uh, the present day. So extractivism as this really kind of like large regime, both an ideology and a material practice uh, that kind of connects, um, uh, you know, technologies of extraction to philosophies of extraction to economics of it, Um, it also constitutes an inheritance because it has Fundamentally transformed human relationships with each other and the non-human world, wherein value is determined through its usefulness, through you know, uh, you know, a human or non-human's usefulness uh, and their and their capacity for productivity. Um, And then the final inheritance here is how we become rooted in places that raised us. And so settler colonialism is one structure that I grapple with in the book broadly, but the preface also narrates my own family of origin um, on my paternal side and how things like the Homestead Act, for example, afforded the purchase of land and a homestead that later led to uh, my grandfather's work in uh, the energy industry. Um, so, in all, inheritance became a key word for the book because, in some ways, inheritance is this very normative relationship that queer studies has critiqued. So, you know, there's work that thinks through inheritance as, you know, an index of property um, that is tethered to normative kin making, um, and how, you know, queer culture is oftentimes defined um, as existing on the outskirts of that normative relationship. Um, But I think I really embrace a sense of inheritance as it's used to posture questions about structures like settler colonialism to remind us of our relationship to these larger systems um, that we inherit over time. Um, so when you think ecologically, it doesn't matter how much we, um, you know, try to forget the past or even, you know, in today's political environment, sometimes explicitly try to erase the past. Um, ecologically speaking, we are living with the actions of earlier generations. And so you, you can think through this as, you know, think of what Marx said in 1852 in terms of the tradition of all dead generations. Ways like a nightmare on the brains of the living.
1: Wow, that's a very evocative quote. Um, (laughs) Nice one to end on. Um, Thank you for going over that. And I recognize this next question is very broad, so feel free to take it where you will. But it is one thing that I would love to speak about because um, since picking up this book, I've shared it with others. Because I mean, it is very interesting and fascinating, like I've said earlier, but like just the idea of how sexuality is related to. The land isn't something that we explore very often, which is why um, I've shared it with a lot of people that are like, oh, wow, I need to check this out. So, if you wouldn't mind speaking to it um, and to set the scene for where we're going to go talking about the rest of the book, can you explain some of the concepts that? You use of sexuality, energy, and land? Um, How might they intersect with one another? And how are they involved in racialized colonial systems of violence?
0: Yeah, so I'll talk about them separately at first for ease of clarity. And then they kind of like will meld together um, as I as I talk more about them. So the way that I'm thinking about sexuality in the book um, tends to or not tends to, but it, it, it's explicitly meant to depart from what tends to be common sense culturally in the United States, which is that sexuality as we know it um, often becomes defined through subjectivity or specifically identity-based terms, right? Um, and so this is the foundation of a lot of kind of early queer studies work and also, right, the kind of the bifurcation between LGBT studies and then queer studies, uh, or like the, yeah, the generation of, of queer studies. Um, and so, um, instead of really kind of like thinking about sexuality in the West as a matter of identity, right which is an important project to do, it's just not the project that that I chose to do in this book, um, I wanted to engage with, with what historians of sexuality call sexual modernity, which is uh, a story of the transformation of Western societies, how res- Western societies regulate and imagine sexual identity as an individual possession. So the, you know, like the... Um, the story as it goes, right? And I'm sort of like pointing to a narrative within the history of sexuality because this is also, right, a matter of debate in terms of the um, um, the time frame and questions and the geography of this all. But um, you know, I'm really trying to kind of think through this specific term, sexual modernity. Um, So this idea of sexuality as as something to be known, as something to possess, is uh, kind of a major argument of the history of sexuality, volume one. It's the basis of uh, a lot of early queer studies work focused on subjectivity So my interest was, if this is one of the major stories of sexuality that we tell, then what role does the environment play in constituting that sense of sexuality? So when you think about this question through the perspective of Western settlement and the lens of settler colonialism, or when you think about it through the context uh, of the late 19th century, Um, One of the ways that the environment and specifically land and energy intersect is this obsession with vitality. So in the introduction and the first chapter, I set the scene to think through vitality in its pre 20th century iteration um, through ideas of bodily capacity um, and early eugenic culture where the environment was imagined as this technology of Energy actualization. So, many of the people who were writing about kind of the the incredible vitality of the West were also people who became deeply interested in uh, the American eugenics movement. So, people like um, John Harvey Kellogg, Theodore Roosevelt, um, George Beard. Right. There's a number of other people. Um, you know white elites on the East Coast, especially, who were really, you know, about the West and its liveliness and its arid water or its arid uh, air and its, you know, vital waters are going to be the kind of the resources necessary to stave off this crisis that they perceived about bodily vitality and specifically about a crisis of um, racial vigor And uh, the capacity of white elites who believe that their own racial supremacy was in crisis. So as much as we try to mythologize about the Rocky Mountain West, right, this is, um, you know, like in many ways where this uh, mythology about vitality and Western vitality, where where it comes from. Um, So that image of the West was... um, Marketed specifically through uh, economic bo- boosters in places like Denver, Colorado, um, also different railroad uh, companies who were trying to bring people who were desiring good health. Um, and you know, one place that they went was uh, was were the Rocky Mountains, um, and they did so because they were so afraid of becoming sexual degenerates, right? Um, And, you know, like in later decades, um, that land was also made useful for people's confinement, right? So, um, you know, people oftentimes will reference the wide open spaces of the West, but in reality, those wide open spaces, especially when they were um oh you know, managed by the Department of the Interior were used to confine um, indigenous peoples in both United States and Canada, in addition to during the World War during World War II, they were used to confine Japanese Americans. Um, and so both of those stories um think through this intersection of confinement and sexuality, because again, they were making these very kind of eugenic-oriented arguments about the need to um, use confinement as a way to assimilate racialized others, um, and also through confined conditions of work, um, specifically agriculture. So one of the lessons that you get from this book is the argument that sexual modernity operates as an extractive regime. Right. So extractive extraction is essentially um, domination without renewal. It's about the um, kind of siphoning of matter. Right. So it's a different way to think about dynamics of um, work and labor and exhaustion as they exist in context of state violence. Um, And so for me, right, again, to go back to that initial question of like, what is the environmental part of our stories of sexuality? It's through, you know, thinking about the production of life through these um, uh, mechanisms of exhaustion and uh, of making people and land and bodies um, usable to capitalist regimes um, and structures um, and really creating this bifurcated um, world of environmental dispossession and environmental privilege.
1: Cool. Thank you for going over that and speaking to those different concepts and how you're using them so um, innovatively, in my opinion at least. Would you mind describing what you call in your book landlines and how you use this kind of as a methodology throughout the text?
0: Yeah. So, one of the, I think, overall major interventions of rural queer studies, you know, broadly is to um more what Scott Herring called the bicoastal imagination of queer studies, which um, was, you know, like really kind of troubling this uh, geography of, of queer culture as, you know, either San Francisco based or New York City based um, and everything in between is flyover country. Right. So I wanted to take it further than that by not just sort of thinking about let's trouble fly over country, but actually really take land seriously in terms of um, how it how it's been structured and engineered um, and propertied in a national context. Um, So from indigenous studies, we have critiques of the settler idea of land as an inert or undynamic materiality. Um, And instead, land is story, it's memory, it's archive. Um, And in the context of the U.S., land is also deeply, deeply structured through property regimes. So we have You know, technologies from technologies of mapping borders and property. Um, We have federal laws that then, um, you know, enforce that imagination of space, Uh, federal laws that also essentially transferred. Wealth to private individuals when you think about how, you know, like how the family farmer, you know, like came to be, it was because of wealth transfer from the government to to private individuals. Um, We also have things like allotment policy, which I talked about earlier, um, which was part of shaping overall kind of dominant stories about settler sexuality in the straight state. Um, So for me, I imagine land as. This as an infrastructure, right? So, um, which brings a sense of aliveness to land in terms of right how it orients people within space, and that kind of infrastructural understanding is really key to understanding landlines as a concept. So from a settler imagination, land as infrastructure provides the material basis for making vitality through extraction, right? So, you know, people would write about vitality as this abstract thing, but then the question is, okay, how do you make that, right? So it it is this very kind of ecological um, orientation and land was very much part of that story. Um, So landlines well, it grasps that how um, the past is still living and activated th- through this uh, kind of cultural sediment. So um, here I'm, I'm borrowing from Raymond Williams, um, who distinguished between the residual and emergent in terms of cultural formation. And for him, the residual is a nod to the still living past that gets activated in particular moments. And um, so landlines activates the different processes in which those disparate terms like land, energy, race, sexuality are forcefully brought together in particular ways, right? So I think this is a um, you know really taking seriously how these larger structures get embedded and placed within specific ecosystems, um, and so as a methodology, I'm interested in how. Cultures of memory, so things like archives or museums or memorial sites, are um, kind of places of encounter that allow us to um, trace those relationships, um, especially when they um, when they surface in contested narratives about the past. And um, this is the thing that's really important about inheritance, as I use it, where it's it's not just something lying around, like you know our. Our grandmother's china in the basement, right? But it's about something that is continuously activated um, as older systems of extractive sexuality are remade into new or emergent structures. So in essence, um, if inheritance is this feeling of living amidst an ongoing and really weighty past, Landlines helps us identify where and when the past shows up in those moments of contestation.
1: Cool, thank you for speaking to that. Um, So diving into the first chapter of your book, the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago and its networks of capacity building is one setting in which you illustrate the, quote, energetic philosophies of sex, race, and disability. Would you mind speaking to how movements, moments, and events like the World's Fair are realizations of the extractive pedagogy of the settler nation state and how this factors into modern sexuality as a, quote, cultural energy regime of extraction, which is a very fascinating way of framing it? Yeah, it's also a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit.
0: Um, sometimes abstractions are really helpful in terms of like identifying specific types of relationships, but I also, you know, like I get how like clunky they they can also be to, to say out loud. So, um, yeah. So one of the major questions of this chapter is how we get the story of the West as one that's about vitality, um, as something to mine, as something to extract for settler flourishing, Um, But moreover, how did we um, also, you know, like create the conditions in which white settler Americans learn to inhabit those paradigms um, of extractivism in terms of national identity? So here, you know, this is really my like communication studies focus coming in in terms of, right, for people like have to be, you know, some people might say like they have to be socialized into these structures, right? They have to, you know, like be... Um, You know, there's some sort of pedagogical component to this. And so, um, whenever I talk to people about this chapter, it's there's the joke is that, you know, like all roads lead to the Chicago World's Fair, which is kind of true for this moment, right? Because it was, uh, you know, a monumental time in terms of national identity because it was the largest kind of national event after the end of the Civil War. Um, And so, I try to characterize it as this concretization of emerging and solidifying ideas um, of energy and the nation, right? So people often tell the story about, you know, like the white city and about the, you know, like how people were just so um, captured by its illumination and all of these kinds of things. And when you dig into a lot of the like the planning and the engineering of this fair, it's also about, right, uh, kind of a model for what architecture can do with, with nature, right? So it's this very kind of like dominating uh, mentality of architecture over nature. So this is also the chapter where I engage most directly with sexologists writing about neurasthenia, which um, is a catch-all category for nervous disease, but also plays a really particular role in connecting sexuality to uh, the West so one of the most well-known neurasthenics Owen Wister who was a Philadelphian and a Western writer people oftentimes remember him as like the the creator of the of the Western genre through his writing of the Virginian um, so he went he was traveling, in the summer of 1893, after his, you know, like big trip West you know, like his, his cousin, Silas Weir Mitchell said, you know, you need to go West and engage in the Western cure, which was again, all about that friction, all about like um, becoming one with nature, so to speak. Right. And in order to produce that, that bodily vitality, um, within within himself. And so he goes to the Chicago World's Fair. Um, And his journals, which I found in the American Heritage Center, um, his journals set the scene for how people engaged with the sensorial aspects of this aspirational city, right, in terms of, right, kind of taking in the spectacle, but also and then finding oneself depleted by it. So that sense of like sensory overwhelm of the environment Um, and then going to a place where you could restore yourself. So he went to this place, He went to dinner with um, Theodore Roosevelt and a number of other white men on an island that was very much kind of engineered to be this, uh, you know, serene, um, non-industrial space, right? But it, in reality, it's you know commodified nature, right? Uh, it's very much an engineered kind of space. Um, so this idea of extractive pedagogy is indebted to uh, Lauren Berlant's writing in Queen of America. Um, and so in that book, they uh, Berlant is recalling a story from where Audre Lorde is talking about um, visiting Washington, D.C. and the importance of uh, place in terms of how people experience the nation in its totality. So when you think about, you know, in the U.S., where do you go to, like, feel the nation, right? Washington, D.C. is one of those places in which we've, you know, constructed that to be. And so um, in the context of the World Fair, right, literally, you know, like, there's state exhibits that people can walk through. There's, um, you know, all of the, you know, new gadgets that are all about, right, emerging modernity and, and progress and, you know, like, this kind of very optimistic utopian imagination about about technology. But it was also a very deeply meta narrative event, right? So people just didn't like walk in and kind of mosey around, so to speak. They were given guides, maps, um, you know, kind of like anchors for how they could manage this uh, enormous space. And so what it what that space did was it included, you know, there's the, the, the fairgrounds, the middle way where oftentimes people would encounter, right, the so-called, quote unquote, uncivilized people, right? And then the heart of the fair, which was about kind of the birth of the new nation, so to speak. And then there was also this um, separate piece where it was the mythology of the Wild West being enacted, Right. So all of these things, people could kind of move through time and space while also learning. Right. What did national identity um, now mean in the in the kind of the aftermath of the Civil War? Um, So really what's, you know, where I want to emphasize is that um, that sense of meaning making isn't a passive experience, that it's it's a really active experience and it's kind of Meta narrative that is guided by all of these maps was really important in terms of thinking about the extractive pedagogy.
1: Yeah, thank you. And transitioning to chapter two, I just want to say I really appreciated the work that you did analyzing archival research and you know what the archive is and what that means. Engaging in that, um, but you focus a lot on a figure named Grace. Raymond Hebard, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, is that correct, Hebard? I... Hebard?
0: That's a good question. So I've always heard Hebert, but I'm Hebert. not I'm not entirely sure to be
1: honest. Okay. <laughs> okay, so um would you mind telling us a little bit about how she was such a progressive figure and how you also call her a sentimental pioneer? Like what does that mean? Right.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So by progressive figure I mean that she was deeply involved in the progressive movement in uh in the US. So she She's, she's a complicated character in the, in this book, um, but she – well, I shouldn't say but. She's a complicated figure, and she ca- plays a really key role in shaping Wyoming history and the history of the West more broadly. So – um she was uh she was born in Iowa she uh you know was i think one of the first women to get a phd from the university of Iowa and then she later became a map maker and moved west to Wyoming where she became a librarian and then later um one of the first faculty uh the first female faculty at the university of Wyoming um And so she was deeply attached to the romanticism of the West. Um, And I think that the reason why um, she was is because she believed that the aspirations of the West were her own aspirations as a woman who was looking for um, mobility in her own life, right? She was very much about um, staking her own, being a pioneer, right? And I think that this is very much in tune with, um, you know, Kind of suffragette uh, era feminism. Um, she also was. Uh, she lived most of her life with an intimate partner um, or intimate friend, as it's as it's called, um, Agnes Werglund, who was a, a Norwegian poet, and they lived together in the Doctors' Inn, which was a house in Laramie. Um, and uh, in her faculty role, Grace played a key role in making out uh, different monuments. So she would, as part of her kind of historical research, she would travel throughout the state and she would give speeches to memorialize these kind of key parts of, of the pioneer past. So things like ruts from the Oregon Trail or this place called Independence Rock where people... Uh, you know, maybe wrote their names um, or other various places uh, throughout the West. She was also part of the controversy that I talk about is this obsession that she had with the figure of Sacagawea, who she wanted to claim as, right, one of the first women pioneers, right? But it's when you really kind of dig into it, it's a really, really... um, Questionable attachment that she has to Sacagawea in terms of right this kind of compulsion to um, uh, dispossess Sacagawea, who is more of a mythic figure than anything, but to dispossess that person of her indigenous identity um, and to make her as part of the the figure of a, of the nation state, so to speak. So um, she was also committed to eugenic ideas about immigrants, um, like many people of her time, and she taught Americanization classes in the region. Um, but again, she loved the story of pioneers because I think that she really saw herself in that in that story um, herself, which is partly why, right, I wanted to go beyond simply saying, oh, guess what, there are these, you know, crypto lesbians who, (laughs) who are part of the larger story of the University of Wyoming, right? Like, for me, um, that, uh, that really needed, I really needed to trouble like my own desires to sort of, you know, like claim this particular queer past within within the region.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's definitely something that, you know, I think is really important is troubling these, um, figures that, you know, we often want to herald and champion because, you know, they did break some new grounds, but also, you know, everyone's a product of their own time and play. Mm-hmm. So it's important to do that kind of work. So I appreciate you going over that. Um, one of the overarching, arguments in chapter two is in favor of a regenerative rather than recuperative imagination. What is the difference between the two, if you wouldn't mind explaining? And also, would you mind speaking to how this challenges us to interrogate the, quote, colonizer within and the heritage of sexual modernity?
0: Yeah. So one of the... I think within you know, folks who who do archival research, there's um, something of a generational divide um, that you'll encounter in queer, feminist, and ethnic studies, um, which is, you know, like, what do we do with the gaps that exist in the historical record, right? So um, the task for an earlier group of scholars, which is that recuperative imagination, um, was to close the gap by identifying people who had contributed in some way Um, to, to the nation, right? So it was about um, reclaiming, recuperating, naming, celebrating um, those people who had otherwise been, you know, like whitewashed um, out of history. So when I learned about Grace's intimate relationship with Agnes, um, you know, like in part, my kind of immediate tendency was to say, you know, how are their lives possible in this way? Because in Wyoming, you know, like the story that I, you know, like we grow up with is that queerness is this thing that doesn't exist in Wyoming's past, right? That it's this new novel thing, um, but it's not, you know, like um, specific or of play, of the place of Wyoming, right? Um, and so I... After coming through her collection multiple times, I finally got to the place of saying, you know, like, maybe I should interrogate my own desires for Grace and Agnes. And maybe it's worthwhile for us to really think about, like, what is it about contemporary queerness and, and specifically the project of the archive that would um, make you desire, right, particular figures and in, in order to celebrate them. So um, queer archive work often relegates you to a type of detective, right? So you are, you know, kind of sneaking your way creatively through the archive and um, trying to, uh, you know, seek out queerness, following your own desires. Um, but I think it's a good, it's a question worth asking of, what are we wanting and why are we wanting, right? So a regenerative ethic, which is the kind of the ethic I, I carry throughout the book um, is about uh, refusing to just simply close the gap, right? To kind of create this suture on the past. But regenerative ethics are really about confronting the violence that we inherit through those imaginations and then doing something with that, um, especially in terms of, you know, complicating our own emotional landscapes. So, um, you know, I'm interested in how can we tell a different story about the past, about these figures and our own relationship to them, that are not rooted in kind of ongoing claims to possession, which is what heritage in a settler lexicon is all about, um, but relinquishing that ownership because that ownership is fundamentally embedded in the subjugation of racialized people, right? So it's not about saying, you know, queerness has always existed in Wyoming. Look at these two two figures, right? They, you know, this is our heritage, so to speak, but rather like, yes, and (laughs) what other kind of story can we tell about, you know, the role of sexuality in, say, like, Eugenics and land and Americanization, and um, all of these other kinds of facets that are still very much prevalent today, both regionally and on a national scale as well.
1: Yeah. And continuing through our little journey of the chapters in your book, um, chapter three is the one where you speak about colonial paternalism on behalf of the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. Can you briefly describe the two very different motivations and experiences of the art installations "Childhood Denied" versus the "Witness Blanket"? And how do we see colonial paternalism happening in state institutions like the Canadian Museum of Human Rights?
0: Yeah. So uh, this chapter was probably the most difficult chapter to to write, in part because just the the content is so. Awful and and um, eviscerating, Um, and so in the spring of 2016, I traveled to Winnipeg in Canada um, with the intention of visiting the museum because I knew that the Witness Blanket was on display. And so, for additional context, at the time I was living uh, in New York near the border of Canada, and at that time. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission had released its report um, in addition to a call for public engagement with um, the TRC mission and um, also a call for public work um, related to um, engaging with the, the legacy of, of the residential schools period. So um, these were two exhibits that um, were both about residential schools. Um, And so Childhood Denied is an exhibit that was um, created by the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Um, And it's in this really large open room on uh, the first floor of the museum. So it's kind of like foundational to your experience walking through um, but the large room, as the museum frames it, is all of these different chapters or mistakes that Canada has made on a, a road to greater progress is the way that they that they explain it. So, childhood denied is is installation that tries to create recreate um, a, a sense of the schoolhouse or of like a schoolroom. Um, so, imagine like a little. Cubby, um, where there is a black and white photograph of students and desks. So it's a historical photograph. Um, There are nuns in the background, and these students are facing the camera and looking at, looking directly, uh, like confronting directly the person who is taking the photograph. in the center, there are two similar shaped desks that are repurposed to use as a... Um, uh, uh, at, they're used as screens for a documentary that's running on loop. And then along both of the right and, and left walls is a linear timeline of the residential schools from the origins. So it's key architects, um, kind of photographs, historical photographs of the schools themselves. And then it runs as it goes from right, from left to right, it moves towards uh, image, color images of the Truth and Reconciliation hearings. So The motivation for that, as I talk about in the book, is providing this, again, kind of settler temporality of linearity of kind of moment of that needs to be troubled to the closure of the TRC. And this is right, the kind of the dominant understanding of reconciliation that, um, you know, is is oftentimes used by the state, i.e., like, let's reconcile um, kind of thing. But, you know, like the question is what does reconciliation even mean, right? Especially when you think about attempts to re-encounter the past while at the same time, committing, you know, like ongoing atrocities, right? Um, Through things like energy projects, pipelines, right? That have all been in the news uh, in recent years. So in contrast, the witness blanket was made by Carrie Newman, who is an indigenous artist and master carver. And his father and his uncle were both school survivors, and uh, so Carrie Newman is a intergenerational survivor. Um, and so his team spent years visiting the ruins of former schools, um, gathering materials that uh, were witness to um, right the everyday goings of of the system. And so he collected things like door handles or roofing structures, rail ties, doors, ice skates, um, any kind of tangible object that he could find. Um, and then he created this installation that is structured as a blanket and it acts for him as a way to honor survivors and those that did not survive, um, and to bear witness again in this moment of calling for reconciliation. And so, um, the key difference between them is, is right, their relationship to temporality, right? And also the kinds of responsibility or witness that they call for. I think that, you know, childhood denied is a very, you know, kind of uh, hegemonic aesthetic in terms of creating a sense of a closure or a stoppage, whereas witness, the witness blanket, um, especially because... It is now kind of jointly stewarded between um, Newman's partnership and the museum itself. Right. There is kind of an ongoing relationship um, of the museum now having to be like a good partner in telling this story. Um, so but that temporality that the witness blanket displays is really important because of ongoing state violence that is Right. Rooted in these structures, um, you know, like, for example, in the U.S., the Supreme Court is currently deliberating about to whether or not to abolish the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, which was about preventing the removal of indigenous children from their homes um, and their placement into adoption agencies or the foster system. And so these histories are very, very much alive. And so, you know, I wanted wanted to think through how um, public encounters through things like museums and specifically um, through art can encourage people to take on a particular mode of witnessing as these, you know, catastrophes continue to unfold.
1: Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that. And, um, I appreciate you bringing up ICWA or the Indian Child Welfare Act, and I think it like directly relates in what you're talking about with like the child, the like capital C child in this chapter. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about the complexities surrounding the construct of childhood? in this chapter and the ways marginalized racial groups specifically are infantilized as children or underdeveloped Um, and also how innocence has been attributed to like white childhood and like Mm -hmm. white children versus like indigenous children have been tortured in these schools and various settings in order to, like, quote, save the child within? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So childhood is a really important colonial concept. Um, You know, I think that that is there's a a range of of conversations that I'm kind of bringing together around this term between, you know, indigenous studies, um, you know, intersectional indigenous studies in addition to kind of foundational work like Philip Deloria, who talked about the kind of rhetorical pairing of um, the quote-unquote Indian and the child, right, as this marker of where dominance is about treating an other as immature or as undeveloped, um, right, and so this is one way in which racializing logics operate. So um, when you think about hierarchy colonial relationships take play, take shape through this I, I, idea of a sovereign who has control over those rendered as children. Um, and so in both the US and Canada, this becomes right, not only like a rhetorical argument that is, you know, operated, or that is, you know, like, iterated within writings of kind of key architects of these schools. Um, but it's also a legal structure that often that that long governs the relationship between um, the state and indigenous nations. And it can, you know, like we could talk about that in terms of, um, you know, kinship structure, the regulation of kinship to, you know, children, to also energy politics more broadly, right? There's these paternal relationships. Um, And so I talk about some of the documents laying out the architecture of um, industrial schools, um, and the big justification that a number of these administrators had was this belief that, quote unquote, their race is in their childhood. Right. And so it was this larger kind of problem for them in terms of really it was about like, how do we how do we get access to this land? Right. So, you know, residential schools take the place of earlier military campaigns. Um uh, Canadian officials realized that their, you know, attempts to um, remove or dispossess Indigenous people of their land was somewhat, I mean, it was a failed project in many ways, right? So they were trying to think about, you know, other means in order to, right, um, assimilate Indigenous people and by the, by doing that, right, get access to, to, to that land. Um, and so... One of the other, um, so, you know, like, they called this campaign a campaign of aggressive civilization that really was about thinking generationally, i.e. like, um, I can't remember specifically in the document how many years, within how many generations, right, assimilation would be achieved. But this was really kind of a, you know, like, the goal was about Um, disrupting in very violent ways, reproductive capacity, right? So it kind of, it operated through a kind of eugenic logic. Um, So in the book, the context for uh, childhood as this abstraction, right? Where like there is this distinction between white innocence and, and the racialization of, of children, right? Or of the child, Um, is through a specific uh, controversy about how best to represent the story of residential schools. Um, And so in one controversy, there were critics who were arguing that the museum's depiction was far too sanitized. So at that point, right, this was simply childhood denied, was, you know, like the, really kind of the only piece that the museum dedicated towards residential schools. Um, And the... Museum countered by saying, "You know, we have to. All of our materials have to be um, appropriate for a certain age range, right? They um, have to be appropriate for in terms of reading complexity as well as content. So, also keep in mind that this entire museum, it's it's dedicated to like talking about human rights in general and." Um, you know, engages questions of, you know, like a variety of different genocides, right? So it's a really heavy place, but it's ultimately meant to inspire the visitor um, on this like journey towards a greater, the greater good, the progress towards human rights. So um, to go back to, right, protecting the white innocence of this imagined uh, you know visitor who needs to be protected from the difficult history or of the difficult witnessing of residential schools is one way that the colonial relationship gets reenacted through this kind of paternalism right it's saying you know like what um it's emotional p- paternalism really in terms of you know like what kind of access ought you have about a you know about this um, about this history right um And I, in the chapter itself, I didn't really, like, I didn't want to put on display the violence itself, because I think that this is, for me, it's also an ethical thing. And I talk about, you know, like, um, uh, Eve Tuck's work on, um, on suspending damage. And I think that, you know, like, as a white seller, um, you know, like, there's, there's a lot of uh, kind of careful maneuvering that you have to do in terms of, Thinking about how you write about topics like this, which is why I stay so close to um, what is the state doing in these circumstances. Um, but yeah, so the museum becomes one way in which, um, you know, that that protection of white innocence again gets manifested through right, even thinking about how people have access to information about these histories.
1: Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that. And transitioning to the next chapter in which you talk about the Japanese internment camps, um, you contest this concept or title, term, whatever we want to call it, of affected persons. Um, and the legal term affected persons means one having a bona fide interest in real property. Um, Instead, you discuss affected persons as an interaction that encompasses a body's capacity to be affected by surrounding ecologies, a relationship that moves between violence and Potentially, in this case, generativity and care. How do these efforts of the memorials and pilgrimages to Manidoka National Historic Site speak to this contesting of legal concepts of property and rights?
0: Yeah, so... um... I wanna start by contextualizing some of the, the some of this chapter to really kind of make it clear what you know affected persons means in both a legal sense and the way that I'm trying to move that term away from specifically a legal sense. So Minadoka National Historic Site is a former uh Incarceration Center for Japanese Americans um, during World War II. It's located uh, near Hunt, Idaho, which is the east southeastern part of, of Idaho. And the controversy that brought me out to Minidoka was this ongoing case about the permitting of a confined animal feeding operation, otherwise known more colloquially as a factory farm or a CAFO. Uh, This was a dairy CAFO. um, And there was a debate about, a long court proceeding about whether or not this operation should be permitted um, because it was going to be located within a few miles of the Minidoka National Historic Site. So a number of the arguments that uh, Friends of Minidoka Made Friends of Minidoka is a nonprofit organization who um, largely is, involve you know people who live in cities like Twin Falls, um, in addition to people who whose relatives were incarcerated at Minidoka, and so um, their argument was that this KFO um, would be. Uh, you know, really disastrous to the historic site itself and would create an inaccessible barrier in terms of smell and sensation and that it would, you know, like pose a threat to the kind of integrity of the historic site in general. So um, the longer history here is that um, part of the Japanese American redress movement was also about really restoring these lands, um, both at, you know at Minidoka, in addition to other incarceration sites, because um, I mean, for a variety of reasons. But one of the reason was is that this is largely a marginalized story in our you know historical awareness and, and consciousness. Um, I remember these stories from people during the pilgrimage talking about how they had to, I mean, people that they went to grade school with or, you know, uh, junior high, high school were just, they just didn't believe them that, Oh wait, you're no, that couldn't have been possible. Nobody would have been, you know, like incarcerated during wartime. Right. And so they had to, um, go through the experience of like, from a family perspective, right. Having their, um, their older relatives share stories or not be able to talk about it, and at the same time, right, confront this just landscape of national forgetting. So I mention that because, right, the lands and the integrity of the land is really important for understanding um, this deme- the specific dimension of redress. So um, in the court case. For, and if you're you know like some people might be more or less familiar with uh with kfos depending on if you live in a state that has a lot of kfos but um, they are notoriously really difficult to uh to resist legally because there's all sorts of ways in which the legal system circumvents people's ability to speak out about kfos or to document um the goings on of any particular CAFO. And so the CAFO objections have, have a series of circumventions to who gets to petition against them. And so many States, including Idaho prioritizes landowners as right. The people who have, who are the affected persons in this normative legal sense who can, you know, submit a petition saying, I don't want this thing on my property, so to speak, or I don't want this thing because it's going to, um, damage the integrity of, of my water system or, you know, impact my ability to, um, right, make money in some kind of way. That's the logic of the most successful kind of petitions against KFOS. Um, in contrast, friends of Minidoka, who again represent the interests of people who were incarcerated, were not able to testify because they were not owners of the of the land, right? So they were caretakers, they were stewards, but the lands of Minidoka exist in this kind of fragmented. Um, system of ownership that's between the national park system. There's some private lands that are embedded in there, but um, but largely, right, they were not seen as right, having the the legal capacity to to testify against right, this this particular CAFO. So um when I was invited by Friends of Minidoka to attend the 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 pilgrimage, um I was thinking through, right, how are they storing the land in a way that may not be recognized by this legal regime of property, but at the same time, right, um, is about, um, you know, really telling a story about the amount of bodily energy and labor that went that, you know, um, their... Their uncles, their aunts, their you know grandparents um, enacted as a way to to create value in the land, right? So when um, when people arrived at Minidoka, they talked about they basically talked about the landscape as a kind of a wasteland, right? So it was uh, volcanic ash. It was dust. It was very, very arid and dry, right? It was not the kind of rich agricultural fields that exist today. So the purpose, there's many purposes of the pilgrimage, but one that I found compelling was um, how much uh, energy, racialized energy was put into the land. And then, The camps closed, um, like around the time that the war ended. And then the question became like, you know, all of this, all of this land was in the public domain. It was, you know, like managed by, by the war department. And so what happened was those enriched fields made uh, viable through Japanese American labor were then transferred to white settler soldiers who were returning from war. And one of the benefits for them was that they got their own piece of land. Right. So in essence, this became a story of, right. um, You know, understanding, um, you know, racialized energy and how wealth and value get transferred from the state to private landowners.
1: Cool. Thank you. One of the things I appreciate most about this book is just like the scope of various, um, almost case studies that you use. So like the Chicago World's Fair, and then we have the, um, you know, Canadian Museum of Human Rights. And then you talk about these Japanese internment camps. And this last chapter, you speak to Petro-Modernity specifically Um, which I found to be very fascinating and interesting. Um, You talk about extractivism of settler colonial sexuality, and one thing that was particularly insightful for me was when you discussed LGBTQ plus folks' migration and automobility being a resource that echoes settler colonialism. You then turned to the work of the collective queer nature, Can you talk about how you utilize landlines in discussing potentials for decolonial queer ecology, especially in the face of these generations of violence?
0: Yeah, so this is also my favorite chapter. Um, And I think it's because it's the most personal, like it, it really brought me back to all of the like, you know, when I was a college student, aimless drives around the outskirts of Laramie, Wyoming as this like way to um process like what felt like major crises in my life at the time. And so um and it's also you know the the chapter where a lot of this project got started. So I want to focus um in particular on the story of queer nature, which is a collaboration, comprised of So and Pinar, Sinopolis Lloyd. Um, And so I met them for the first time when they were living in Boulder, Colorado. And this is kind of the genesis of um, their project, Queer Nature. And they're now located in um, the central slash western part of Washington State. So the first section of the chapter really wrestles with these um, broader collections of narratives um, from people that I interviewed um, in Wyoming and Colorado, and they're focused on narratives of escape as they're mediated by petroculture. So petroculture is in essence, this twinning of energy infrastructure with culture. So in a kind of a queer lexicon, Um, You know, it's thinking about, you know, practices of automobility or mobility in general, or, um, you know, like, even as like, after I started this work, you know, thinking about when transportation infrastructure shows up in these like, canonical queer films, I'm like, what is this? What is this all about? Right. Um, And so I was really drawn to queer nature's work because they to me they really embody you know like the kind of alternative to um extractive culture um and they do so by you know thinking through what does a radical vision of belonging look like in a way that is rooted to place um instead of right this kind of compulsion to to escape and then to remake your life somewhere else. And I'm really careful be, and you know like especially in this political moment right now where you know like we are grappling again with these vocabularies about for, for LGBT people and trans people specifically about you know safe states and having to move and relocate and I was thinking through these conversations, I was thinking through these narratives of escape in a very different context. So I just wanted to make that clear. Um, But, you know, like, I think that one of the challenges for, you know, queer folks, as we think about, like, um, you know, life and the climate crisis is really thinking about a connection to place a connection to land, um, and to making space um, for ourselves. and, you know, like for queer nature, they really embody a sense of belonging as understanding your relationship to the land, right? As always being active witness of who came before and how have, um, you know, like have different economic political systems, right? How do they encourage a really violent relationship um, with the land? And, um for queer nature in particular, they really bring to the table, right, not only thinking about the resistance and resilience of queer people generally, but also thinking about how we can be partners of co-liberation of multi-species, right, so humans and non-humans who also live in these ecosystems. So... For me, this really underscores conversations about uprooting systems of settler sexuality. So again, right, I want to just nod to the work of Kim Talbair in particular in terms of, right, um, this terminology of settler, settler systems of sexuality. So sexuality, you know, from this perspective of queer nature doesn't have to operate as a means of Extracting from the land um, and possessing people and place, but it can be something much more generative um, and regenerative and anti-extractive. And um, the thing that I keep on thinking about is, like, again, the kind of the the dimension of regeneration, which is oftentimes used as this kind of like counter to extraction to extraction, how it opens possibilities for thinking about erotics and eroticism and um, um, new possibilities for organizing sex- uh, social systems.
1: Awesome. Thank you for speaking to that. And um, yeah, not to say that it's also my favorite chapter, because <laughs> I do really appreciate all of them, but it definitely was one that spoke most to me. Um, so I appreciate that. and. Not to be too much of a spoiler for the book, but um, towards the end, you're talking um, kind of I don't know if next steps is the right word, but kind of, you know, like, how do we deal with this? And you share Mm -hmm. a vision of queer embodied collaborative stewardship. Would you mind speaking a little bit about that and how it can resist the scarcity frameworks of settler modernity?
0: yeah so collaborative stewardship is uh, it's a it's a helpful framework for thinking about action within context of irre- irreconcilable systems so um, there are um, frameworks operative in a lot of conservation communities that bring together indigenous and settler systems of environmental stewardship um, but part of the problem has been, how some, how the roots of those systems and settler cultures, um, are really about kind of a problem of management. So as a kind of a, a quick example, a lot of these, uh, pop up in conversations about wildfire. So, you know, like one of the drivers of our, you know, um, of mega fires is the fact that we have used fire management techniques that, um, are very much rooted in, you know, um, And, you know, like an ethos of management, of scientific management specifically, right, if you go back to some of these early forestry handbooks, but, um, you know, and people will argue, well, you know, indigenous people had a very different mode of working with fire, right? It was something of not management, but it was a working with, right? So this is one example in which these conversations are happening, but they also are competing worldviews and competing systems. And so I'm trying to think through like, not, not like um, one overpowering the other, but really thinking about how people are currently, right, trying to operate within attention of those of those frameworks, right. And so sometimes, particularly, you know, like, uh, Kyle White writes about this in terms of, you know, like, sometimes, it's, appropriate to engage with settler, you know, conservation practices. And sometimes it's not, and it's not about management. It's about like, it's about care. And if it's that, then what are the relationships that we focus on and foster and what are the things that we have to let go? Um, And so I see that as a much different kind of ethos than the kind of, uh, management style that is alive in so much uh, environmental work. Um, and so, as I'm thinking about this in the context of queer embodied collaborative stewardship, um, I'm thinking about how, again, we can orient a relationship to place through erotics, through um, a, an embrace of, of, of the abundance of living systems, and to think about how frameworks of care might dislocate that long-standing regime of management. Um, because m- management is fundamentally about scarcity. It's about like efficiency. It's about how we can um, m- force our will upon various living beings, right in order to ensure productivity, to make more productivity to basically generate more and more value. Um, so I wanted to embrace a sense of queer that resists that scarcity framework, that, that management framework, um, which is, you know, resisting the calculated shrinking of life in terms of possibility or even value. And so, you know, one of the questions that I continue to think about is what can a queer ecology become when we center abundance rather than scarcity? Um, and I know it's, you know, easier said than done. But uh, in my mind, I want a queer ecology that prioritizes resisting capitalism's extractive energy regimes.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you framing it that way and speaking to kind of, you know, what a vision for that can look like. So, um I've really appreciated our conversation today, Dr. Cram. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and for sharing this amazing book with the world. I will just say it once again, everybody should totally get a copy and um, dive into what you've done. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you.